All right, welcome to episode 17 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm joined again with Alex Viata. In episode one, we kind of laid the foundation of concurrent training in that we spoke about training longevity, skill acquisition, preparatory phases of training, some injury prevention uh, as well. And today we're going to kind of work with that foundation, the foundation of what makes concurrent training successful when applied appropriately. And we've really evolved our understanding of how hybrid we can actually become with our training and actually excel in both endurance sports and strength sports, or just simply endurance training or strength training. But we're going to kind of take the next leap into the development. And as we go away from the foundation, what this might look like over years and years of training for the beginner athlete and for the intermediate athlete. Uh, Alex, welcome again to the show. And again, thanks for taking your time. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me back on. I enjoyed the discussion last time and uh, really yeah. looking forward to this. Yeah, it was a blast. So uh, we have, let's just say an athlete who comes to you, who comes to complete human performance. They might be new to either strength or conditioning. They're uh, probably uh, preferring one aspect of concurrent training over the other based on uh, prevailing fiber types or interests or anthropometrics. So they, they may have been doing one and not the other, but they come to you and they're a beginner. Their, their numbers may reflect that of someone who has a history of maybe six months to a year of training, but they want to start with a concurrent training model. What's kind of the first thing you think for this beginner um, and, and how might they progress? So, and yeah, and we, you know, we actually, we do get that a lot, I think, because a lot of people arrive at concurrent training in, in part because they say, well, you know, I've never really loved staying focused enough in one discipline to, uh, yeah. to let myself excel at it. So, yeah, this is actually pretty common. And, and as you know, the tough thing there is there are so many different kinds of skill that need to be developed. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I think I, I talk about pretty consistently is that, when you, when you have an athlete at all who wants to have any level of performance, you, know, you, you can't just start out by hammering them into the ground. They, they have to, in many ways, like I say, earn the right to, to start pushing themselves harder. Uh, you know, they have to develop proficiency, develop movement proficiency, um, start to understand the mechanics of what they're doing and, you know, kind of create a recovery profile for themselves before we can really just start, uh, you know, start testing it. So when they, when they come to us, the, the biggest thing is really finding out what their sort of relative proficiency is and relative tolerance is in each area because every athlete has their own profile. Every athlete has their own tolerance for both mental and physical uh, discomfort and volume in each discipline. Like, like for example, you, you take, a, you take a, a, an experienced runner and to them the, the discrete cost of running is, is next to nothing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you tell them, okay, go out for an easy 30-minute run. For them, that's, you know, if they've been running for years and years and years, the, the cost to that is minimal to them, at least from a psychological standpoint. The physical cost to them, though, may be relatively high on like an energy systems and neurological level, but relatively low on a mechanical level. Um, you know, for, they're, they're very proficient. They're very experienced. You know, they're not beating themselves up through bad form. They're beating themselves up simply by volume and intensity. So even beginners have this to a certain extent. When you, when you take a look at an individual and you say, well, what's your experience level? 
chances are they have one or two different things in their history that they, they have a predilection for, that they have an enjoyment of, and a few things that they've resisted. So when we run any kind of initial assessment on them and they, you know, they walk in the door and we say, okay, well, let's find out where you are. Our initial assessments are, you know, first of all, we get a you know, complete training history from them and everything else, a complete competitive history. We also tend to look at what activities they may be voluntarily engaged in, any sort of physical type activities outside of exercise, because usually that gives a pretty good example of what, what these individuals do for like a mental release. Um, do they prefer high intensity type activities or high stress activities to, you know, to relax and disengage? You know, do they, do they play poker? You know, do they, do they watch, you know, do they watch sports in many cases, which can be mentally taxing if you like a team, you know, just kind of a yeah. competitive sort of mindset. Or are they more the, Hey, you know, I, I like to go outside. I like to hike. Oh, you know, I like to swim. I like to go, you know, tubing or whatever. And are they somebody who recovers and who spends more of their time doing relaxed type activities? That already starts to give us kind of a sense of an individual profile, like who who are they, what rejuvenates them, and you know if, if we find out what kind of material, what kind of things they already like doing, we know that they have a higher tolerance for those activities. But of course, they also have a higher burnout potential because they'll push it too hard. So that's step one. I, I, that's uh, so much. And just being completely honest, with with uh, no offense to our athletes who've already joined us, but perhaps giving us a little bit more insight into where we might want to go with our assessment protocols. But that's nowhere near as in depth as we get. But it's brilliant. Um, usually, because we don't do that, this ends up becoming a conversation further down the road. Let's say if someone's not recovering, uh, but we form these really good relationships with our athletes, mm-hmm. and we find out, oh well, you know. They say, I haven't made time for my uh, simple passions and enjoyments. And just even that can kind of set off like a red flag. And we might talk about just kind of what's going on, right? Like how are things going? Uh, What else is going on that might be a stressor outside of training? But that becomes a conversation much later on than understanding kind of what all is involved, not just them as an athlete, but from an enjoyment perspective. That's brilliant. Right. Because, you know, for, and especially for beginners, we don't have a lot of data on them. We don't have years of their competitive history and you've done this. Okay. You know, what kind of programs did you follow and everything else? We're, we're kind of looking, we're trying to look almost at context clues for these individuals. So of course, you know, we run, you know, we run the full battery of movement tests and strength endurance tests. We look at, you know, rep versus one rep max to take a look at, you know, their, their explosiveness and their athlete type, you know, work up to a working max. Let's do 75%. See how many repetitions you can perform, what fatigues first. You know, a lot of that kind of work we'll do is zone two running test. But the, the biggest thing for them as well is, is, is contextualizing it. Since they don't have a massive athletic history, you know, we'll also say, okay, for example, a client who came to us, um, the background is, you know, they're looking to do, uh, you know, like a, sorry, Mount Whitney and a couple of other, you know, they're looking to do a bunch of 14ers, long hikes, long runs. And you look at this individual's training background and, you know, the, the person loves backcountry hunting is, is one major activity. Uh, has never really had any extended tolerance for lifting sessions. You know, obviously, finds them relatively dull, but for some reason has always gravitated towards rock climbing, calisthenics, things like that. So this individual has a tremendous – because of their background in climbing, to them, skill acquisition is something that they value very highly. Skill, yeah. they like to approach their training as puzzles. They And actually, by having this person actually start doing – weightlifting type movements and talking about mechanics, talking about utilizing movement as a puzzle to solve. 
as you know, something where improvement can be seen that doesn't just come from buckling down and grinding, suddenly this individual got more, you know, they, we found a way to get them engaged in the process of movement acquisition by focusing on it as kind of a puzzle. And again, like I said, this is, you know, this is talking about beginners. This is talking about people where we don't have an extended training history where we can start pulling in a lot of data. Yeah, and I think those people who like the problem-solving aspects are those who are okay with the repetition of it all. If we were to mention, hey, there are other athletes who are concerned with what other people are doing on the internet and the fact that their snatch hasn't gone up in the year, that might puzzle them because they just kind of simply enjoy the craft of it. Uh, Whereas you might actually have, and we've spoken about some of the benefits of remote coaching, you have so much video that you have uh, readily available where you might look at just simple and very obvious technique pro- uh, progress rather than load. Uh, so I think that just is such a, a really insightful thing to ask. And I never thought about it in terms of their interests. I just kind of thought about it in terms of activity. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, again, I keep coming back to the fact that these are beginners because I think a lot of athletes, um, you know, they, they, use, they use athletics, they use competition as both an outlet and, you know, and, and a general, you know, this is this is both their competitive outlet and a source of potential stress, but it's also a relaxation outlet. And I think a lot of people and, you know, you, you can kind of understand a lot of athletes in that regard because, you know, we understand how they'll respond to days off. We'll understand how they'll respond to you know, deloads. We understand the stress of the competitive season. For people who are relatively new to it, we again we don't we don't have that context, and you have to say, okay, well, what are their current outlets? What are their you know what's their current uh, stress profile, and and how do we manage that? And how do we look at where they're coming from to determine, okay, is this person going to benefit from extended you know running form cues and coaching sessions? You know, is this do they enjoy skill acquisition? Do they enjoy you know relatively monotonous activities? Or yeah need something that is more immediately engaging? Do we need to utilize cues and activities that focus on, you know, shorter periods of time of acute skill acquisition and then move on to something else? Okay. Uh, one, one more question for you, Alex, is, is there a time that you and your coaches have between that initial assessment or perhaps it's multiple days of, of assessing and getting data, but between the assessment period and when the program begins day one we tend to keep it fairly minimal um because <coughs> excuse me at this point we have so much data that yeah. you know at the, we already have we and again we don't use templates but we already have kind of athlete profile types um you know looking at their background and everything else i say well you know this is this is this type this is a endurance tolerant highly fatigue resistant um, you know, heavy on skill acquisition, but relatively low on, you know, kind of mid duration persistence. Uh, you know, they're relatively pain averse. So I can already tell, okay, these are the assessments I'm going to run for this individual. This is where I think they're going to fail. This is where I think they're going to succeed. And I'll start already developing a program based on that profile. And that, that kind of lets me look at the assessments when they come in, which are either confirmatory towards my, my thought, my thinking of their profile or you know they may they may go against it. They'll say, okay, I can you know re- revisit. But that's going to that's going to really by the time they finish that final assessment, I will already have planned out their first couple of weeks just based on where I think they're going to go and what they're going to benefit from. 
Okay, so let's start with that athlete who comes to you. They are a beginner and they in fact express this interest for skill acquisition. Uh, and because you have these athlete profiles, are there any kind of high priority pieces that you attach to beginner with interest in skill acquisition or just learning that you want to involve in their program or that you see as being uh, either most effective or more, most enjoyable or the best bang for their buck for the endurance athlete who's now coming to strength? Yeah, for the endurance athlete who's now coming into strength, I think one of the most interesting things is endurance athletes are very good at understanding where their body is in space, but they're not more from a where is their head positioned and where is their body weight shifted in relation to their feet, but they are very bad at understanding that under external loads. So one of the interesting things we do with them, or certainly I do with a lot of them, is when it comes to skill acquisition – the, the very first thing we start to do is teach loaded bracing with all of them and loaded movement, um, you know, bracing with load on the spine. So I actually do a lot of weighted carry skill acquisition with them. Mm. It teaches a very different way of stabilizing the body under load. And so many things, if we start having them do so even just, uh, you know, basic barbell walks, barbell weighted lunges, uh, farmer's carries and the like – for them, that creates that, that most critical missing piece of skill acquisition for a lot of them, which is how to brace the midsection under load across the shoulders or under load on the top extremities. And that's really going to dictate how well they respond to squat cues in the future, deadlift cues in the future, overhead press cues in the future. Because a lot of these individuals are very good at balancing their body on its own. On, the, on its own. But as soon as we start adding in elements of, of skill acquisition, that's one of the major points that uh, we used to miss quite a bit in the past. Well, the first thing we'd do in the past is put them under a squat bar and say, okay, you know, just brace your midsection and pull down the bar across your back and step back. And so much was unsteady just in that initial walkout and that initial movement and that initial pattern at which, you know, the, the order in which they brace their midsection is not what many lifters would consider intuitive. Uh-huh. And we, you know, I, it's so cool to hear you say that because we have for so long involved carries, not just from this trunk stability standpoint with locomotion. It's kind of like you're meeting them halfway, right? Rather than just throwing them uh, under the barbell for a squat. But it's also just, it's really cool. It's its its fun. Um, and, and at least in our experience, we've seen that <clears throat> there seems to be this kind of like pretty uh, large uh, slope to rate of progress where like they might start off and not know how to coordinate themselves. And they're kind of like, walking in zigzags uh, and crisscrossing their feet. But it seems like that rate of skill acquisition happens rather quickly for things like weighted carries. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It really does. And it's something that I think they can relate to on, on a certain level, like, you know, especially the endurance athletes. It's, it's something where the skill acquisition is all in the fine points of movement and mm-hmm. the people with an endurance background and they, they know intuitively when when an activity is taking less and less effort to perform the same load. And For sure. something like a squat, especially when you're teaching it remotely, is that what feels like a good squat and what feels like and what is obviously actually a good squat um, is a really difficult thing to coach to people without a lifting background. You say, well, how did that feel? I say, oh, it felt okay. <laughs> yeah. But we progress up to the weighted carries. And when we do like a skill acquisition for beginners, it's all very incremental. It's Let's start from the middle and work to the extremities. So when we're building skill, when we're teaching them things to focus on, let's start with the low-hanging fruit that has the biggest carryover. And 
you know, again, for them, it's talking about efficiency of movement, economy of movement. You're speaking to them in the kind of shared language of both strength sports and endurance sports. I mean, you talk to cyclists and, you know, you, you talk to a cyclist about what is good, what is good climbing form on cycling? And you say, okay, well, shoulders down, you know, back, you know, pull your scapula back together, bring your elbows down, brace your midsection, pull your stomach into your, you know, to your spine, keep your hips steady, you know, and keep your knees in, don't let them drift out. And you think about a lot of that and you think, well, these are, this is a similar way of speaking that I would speak to a lifter about certain activities. So yeah. how can I use that kind of shared language and that shared body awareness to go from one activity to the next? Because those are probably your same cues for carrying, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so many of them are. And you say, okay, well, let's the, – the most important thing to, to demonstrate to people who have some experience in one sport and less than another is where those commonalities lie. And how they – it's not that they have to new, learn an entirely new language. It's just a new dialect. And, you know, you incrementally, you know, it's by, by explaining that it's just a new dialect, suddenly they don't feel like it's so foreign. And the, the whole skill acquisition component becomes a lot more, uh, I guess, a lot more appealing, I might say, because you're saying, look, it's just different ways of learning to move your body. A squat, even if all you've done all your life is run, a squat may seem like a slightly foreign activity, but it's really not because 80 percent of what your body is doing is the same. Yeah, and it, it, this makes me think that most strongman-like exercises uh, seem to have that similar rate of progress. And once you've kind of figured out the trick, so to speak, it, it seems to click rather quickly. For instance, when I learned how to transition a log to my shoulders, like that flick, uh, it felt familiar to me having started with weightlifting, but when I watch beginners learn how to shoulder a log or shoulder a stone, they seem to have that relatively quick progress, even though they don't have that sensation of a weightlessness moment and then a catch right. as with like a weightlifting background, what it just seems like it's more approachable because the barbell, I don't know if it's the diameter of the bar or perhaps just the aesthetic of it, but it can seem to befuddle people who have no background with it at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, skill skill acquisition, skill development is such a it's such a process of taking small, manageable steps. If if the skill you are attempting to coach an athlete is so wildly different from anything they can contextualize, they're not going to be able to self regulate the development of that skill. Um, yeah. It's, it's like you know, it's absolutely going from weightlifting to to cleaning a log. It's there are enough similarities that once that once that sensation, once that feeling comes together, the athlete kind of intuitively says, "Aha! I've nailed it!" Like I've I've gotten to that point where the movement itself feels like I am manipulating this object in a way that's going to let me complete the movement with minimal stress. Mm-hmm. So every bit about skill acquisition is having each piece of skill acquisition be one thing that is immediately relatable to the athlete. It's, it's like when we coach running, every cue starts with something similar to what the athlete already knows and can already feel and can already sense. Yeah. So let's just say from, from there you have, you have these weighted carries and, and you're in, introducing the barbell. Um, now, for those listening, if you're not following Alex on Instagram, definitely get on that right now. Uh, just at Alex Viata. And Alex 
in 15 second clips on his Instagram story releases amazing content. And Alex, I think it was last week you spoke about uh, low bar and high bar squats. And a lot of people have contentions around this and kind of like stand in the party of the low bar, stand firmly in the party of the high bar, where there's all this debate about, well, with which lift can I uh, move the most load? With which lift can I become most strong? And you were describing, well, it really can't be compared because they're just two different exercises altogether. And when you have uh, athletes who are trying to transition into the barbell, um, how do you kind of begin selecting what might be a good place for them to start? Another thought I just had was, say, sumo versus conventional deadlift. Because they have no background in it, how do you begin to select these exercises? Is it by comfort? Is it by exposing them to both and just kind of seeing what feels good on them? Yeah, you know, and it, it's it's really that's a really interesting question because what an athlete may be most comfortable with may be comfortable because of an existing imbalance or because of, of an existing issue that we're precisely trying to fix. Um, you know, I mean, we may have runners who are just exceptionally good at a you know particular narrow sense high bar squat, and that may precisely be because. You know, they lack hip stability, so it's not that they're necessarily better at that squat. It's that in what is actually a better movement for them mechanically, they have certain things that are inhibiting their development or inhibiting their power production. So oh, yeah, yeah. So we we try to we try to start out as agnostic as possible on all these things. Uh-huh. Um, the the most the most critical thing at this point is understanding that the precise mechanics of different types of bars and different types of movements are not, I, I use the term clinically significant. Um, and I, I know that's just left over from pharmaceutical days, but there's, you know, there's a statistically significant difference where you say, well, this is the contribution from the posterior chain versus the quadriceps. And this is statistically significant, but clinically yeah. significant. In other words, is this going to affect the athlete's strength or movement is probably a no. So, we, we try to not get too caught up in whether a movement preferentially supposedly engages the hamstrings or the hips or anything else. We try to think about it in, in terms of, okay, let's start out with a, based on this athlete's proportions, we tend to know that certain limb lengths and certain physical proportions predispose people to being better at certain kind of lifts than others. Mm -hmm. So we typically perform multiple comparisons. And uh, one of the things that some of my athletes uh, I've done is, is basically the, you know, uh, doing videos with either masking tape or some sort of reflective tape on the joints so we can compare side to side. Uh -huh. We'll have them perform several different iterations of a similar lift, um, same camera angle, same session, and everything else. And typically what we look for in that is – less about weight and you know overall movement quality and more about what we call kind of a, I mean just the simplest way to put it would be wavering um, any sort of sign of an unsure movement or moments of delayed power production uh, okay um, when we so when you typically watch somebody perform a squat now say somebody who's relatively new to the squat if you've ever seen work with an injured athlete before you know that that injury that side of injury even if it's no longer injured, if a joint, if a muscle or anything else has a previous injury or has a previous weakness, when the body feels that it suddenly stress itself to a position of discomfort or imbalance, the body will actually momentarily reduce maximum power production. And it's a simple neurological feedback. An injured muscle no longer 
contract at 100% effort unless a experienced skill movement overrides that physical tendency to reduce power production. Mm-hmm. And most of us have experienced that, where you know, you're coming out of the bottom of the spot, you feel your knee tweak for even a second, and suddenly those muscles shut down and you're no longer driving up as hard as you could. So when we see somebody, when we see a beginner performing, say, a narrow stance, high bar, or a wide stance, low bar squat, the form isn't going to be great anyway. I mean, they're, they're brand new. But what we look for more than anything else are signs of discomfort. Or, you know, if we, if we notice a waiver in the knee, if we notice a waiver just on the hip on one side, and it's repeatable, what that identifies to us is that there is either an injury or a mechanical reason that that movement is being artificially constrained. So mm. if we're watching somebody, we're watching a new, a new lifter perform a low bar squat and they say, oh, you know, that, that, I think that's much weaker than, you know, than, the, than when we do the high bar squat. Does that necessarily mean it's an unfavorable movement for them? Well, if, they, if they're experiencing that waiver, if they're experiencing that movement delay, uh, that, that brief moment during the lift where something looks mechanically unsound, this could be the issue that we need to address. If we can find and eliminate that issue, then does that become the superior movement for them? And I think not to get too too tangential here, but I think that highlights the importance of keeping cues simple for beginners because they can tell you a lot before you give them a lot, right? So something that we often say is, hey, we, you know, if, if we have a squat, we'd like to, you to take this weight, whether, however we've loaded it externally, under the chin, on the back, et cetera. We say, you know, we'd like you to bend your hips and knees as far as feels comfortable. And we just kind of see where they go. And as long as we just say, hey, we want you to perform this in a controlled manner on the on the way down, it tells us a lot um, before we just start spitting out every cue we've ever heard uh, from YouTube. Uh, so I think that's a really great uh, way of just kind of testing the waters, seeing what's going on and kind of seeing what the body reveals. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you nailed it right there. Seeing what the body reveals is, you know, the process of skill acquisition. I, I think the term skill acquisition always seems a little bit wrong to me because we all inherently have some level of skill at any movement we want to try. That level of skill can be absolutely horrendous. But uh-huh. once you explain somebody, something to somebody, there's, there's already some skill there. So it's really about it's, it's skill development, but it's also skill modification. And you tell anybody to do a squat, anybody out there, any human on earth knows how to do a squat. They, they may not necessarily know how to perform a squat you can load, though. So yeah. rather than telling them, like you said, a dozen cues to already start influencing their movement, we want to see what their body does when left to its own devices. Yeah, and, and from an uh, assessment protocol, I, I just think that is so, so important to keep it simple, see how the body uh, expresses motion without any uh, tempering or, uh, because maybe you might miss something or, or influence something as it wouldn't otherwise be expressed, and which, which might have a, a significant impact on how you proceed after that ass- assessment. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Very cool. So we, we spoke about the beginner endurance athlete coming to strength and you began by saying that you notice that they have really good proprioception however when you introduce external load it becomes certainly more of a challenge just because that's not a a part maybe outside of just determining where the bike is going uh, a part of endurance sport do you find and, and your way of kind of 
bridging that gap was talking about, you know, just postural cues that are quite, again, simple, shoulders back and down, belly tight. Do you find that the strength athlete is because they have had those cues maybe a little bit more explicitly able to, able to better carry that over into the endurance world? Or do they just start like doing random shit and, and start trying too much? I think one of uh, well, it, it's interesting too because one of the things we talk about in a lot of our courses is the difference in you know athlete profile and proficiency. And strength athletes' proprioception is fantastic for the most part. Yeah, agility tends to be a skill that is not worked on. Now, of course, certain certain weightlifters you know demonstrate incredible agility, especially because they can move themselves quickly. But the the idea of if you generally perform an activity where your feet are planted in space and your body is moving the load through space with no actual shifting of the body itself, like in other words, you know, you're, you're staying more or less in one spot. The uh-huh. notion of direction change and movement change and everything else tends to be a little bit warped. Um, you look at good endurance. That, now, a, a good lifter is fantastic for picking up on cues. Mm-hmm. You know, even uh, commented on this. Uh, one of the one of the athletes we trained uh, last year, uh, Chris Gethin, he comes from a bodybuilding background, and I took him out for a ride. He was training for an Ironman. I took him out for a ride and gave him some similar cues just on how to position yourself properly when you're climbing on a bike, because there are certain things you do to maximize power production, et cetera, et cetera. He nailed those cues and looked like a pro on the bike in about thirty seconds. Well, I'll bet, especially with a bodybuilder, just because they're aware of what muscles are firing and when, right? Absolutely. And, and that was the weirdest thing. You say, well, contract your right teres major, and they somehow do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and that was exactly it. That, that level of, of self, that level of muscle awareness, I think. Yeah. You know, not just where your body is spatially, but muscle awareness and saying, okay, bring your shoulders back a little bit. There's that instinctive knowledge that, oh, okay, you know, I can do that. Okay, well, you know, brace your midsection and try to – and if you say eliminate that anterior pelvic tilt and, you know, brace the abs a little bit more, maintain a neutral spine, you know, uh, even in that case, a lot of runners may be like, huh? But yeah, will <laughs> say, okay, you know, I can do that. All right. You, you, know, you want me to pack my neck? It, it's, it's interesting because – Yeah, it, it, it really is. It, it makes something so much easier. You just – but again, you kind of have to speak the language a little bit. Well, I, I was once told about one of your cues, and maybe we can just share some that you think are uh, most common in this uh, scenario of a beginner endurance athlete who's had a background in, in weight training, where I was on a run with a friend, um, and this friend was discussing how he had learned from you that a lot of males in particular tend to run with an extended posture, whether it's due to the like or I think you had perhaps mentioned due to like the overcorrecting of just maybe like a heavy chest, so to speak, or having just trained the chest. And of course the, 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 the pecs can help with the adduction of running, but I just found myself naturally as he was saying it. And there's like really like leaning back extended posture in a sense, trying to like overcorrect. But I found that I was able to make the correction based on the cues and uh, external load awareness that I've had through strength training. It, it, does that sound right to you? Have I butchered that? Or no, and that's that's exactly it. I, I think the the important thing is good runners can talk about foot strike, for example. 
And they're very aware of where their feet may be hitting. Or, you know, the running coaches may be very aware of it. For lifters and the like, you know, a lot of us are much more aware of upper body position, posture, and cues we're using for the sake of lifting. And absolutely, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain pattern of bracing and certain pattern of moving and certain even upper body structures that are very common to lifters. Like you just mentioned, like a strong chest, the chest moving forward, you know, you have anterior pelvic tilts, you combine the two, you get, you know, a lot of potential for example, a lot of heavier runners get a lot of uh, kind of inguinal pain running on downhills. And one of the reasons for that is you combine anterior pelvic tilt with a strong chest and, you know, excessive you know, compensation for that. And suddenly you get the entire midsection in a pre-stretch position running downhill. That is much less common with endurance athletes. Oh, yeah. So you – And for yeah, – oh. Just for, for for the audience who might not be aware of this this anterior pelvic tilt posture, if you imagine a brim of a bowl and that bowl is filled with water representing your pelvis, the bowl, if you're running downhill, would be tilted down the slope of the hill as water comes forward on it, if that helps. Uh, so you're almost in this extension of the low back uh, as the brim of the pelvis or bowl in this analogy spills water forwards. And all these things combine to a lot of what we kind of see this excessive overstriding power production from lifters. So if you have somebody who's a complete novice to both, they may not have this tendency. But the fact uh-huh. that a lifter has this training age and has developed these movement patterns, both you know as protective and potentially adaptive for the sport, plus as part of their general just developed skill – you, you have to be able to understand and build from the top down for lifters because you, you fix a lot of lifters' upper body posture and a lot of the lower body movement resolves itself. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I found that what I struggled with most when <clears throat> refining not just my run mechanics but also my sprint mechanics and I didn't take it from a top-down approach, I just tried to think of it all together, was that in weight training, I feel like there is a strong connection amongst almost all exercise and sport of a transfer of motion from one segment of the body to another. And oftentimes when that transfer occurs, perhaps one is either uh, isometric um, while the other is moving and that, that transfer switches. So for instance, in a snatch, you know, the legs are giving a drive. So you don't really want to think about the arms until that transfer switches in the pull or, um, perhaps in a deadlift, you know, you might set your body tight, upper body tight, and then kind of really focus on how dynamic the lower body and trunk is moving. Whereas with running, I was trying to tackle both upper and lower together, which may be safe for like a bench press, just kind of screwing my feet into the ground with my shoulders retracted. I had never been forced to do. I was like totally overwhelmed. And in this one sprint uh, session, I nearly just fell on my face because I was focusing on like pawing off with my feet, shortening my stride, keeping my arms tight and close by my side. This is in a sprint, not in a longer jog. And I, I nearly fell on my face because I didn't have an, like a, an order with which to approach it. Right. Yeah. It, it, and it's really funny because it is such a thing where you say, okay, well, this, this time I'm just going to focus on this one thing and you know, not worry about the rest so much. And it, it's, it's interesting because in a sprint, you know, endurance sports tend to be such cyclic actions that 
you can't you can't build a movement as a you know a single as a single moment of hip extension followed by a single phase two followed by a single phase three. Every moment yeah. running is seamlessly going through the entire movement cycle, repeatedly over and over and over again. And it's a it's a very it, it becomes entirely too much to think about. Yeah, <laughs> as, I mean, as you saw, and it, especially, and again, especially for lifters, and it's not that lifters aren't good at cue acquisition, it's that there, there's a very much a singular objective to each cue in the lifting process. Hmm. Whereas in running or in endurance sports, the objective is always the repeat of the movement. Yeah, so, very cool. So, so you might want to just start top down and, and perhaps some cues attached to that uh, upper body posture for strength athletes m- might kind of be uh, a back to the basics with lifting, as you mentioned, with like you know shoulders back and down, chest over the pelvis. Yep. Yeah, and that, and that's 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 what it really is. Is saying okay, you know, fundamentally, you're 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 a lifter. You understand you understand how to brace your upper body. You understand how to position your shoulders for different exercises. Let's speak in that same language because that's that's the closest dialect that you speak of this training language let's modify those first and let's see where things evolve from that Uh we get into this a lot as well when people who are new to running and they say well you know i get lifting background should i do a forefoot strike should i do a heel strike and this and the other if we try to address that first without addressing the upper body issues then we don't have a good frame of reference for their current movement patterns it's the same thing as saying well am i a high bar squat or a low bar squat you say well i don't know right now you're you are learning so many new skills to perform this correctly that in most cases you say well let's see what you are naturally but first we need to we need to put you in a position where we can safely load your body so very cool the same thing for running you say well okay let's let's establish that upper body posture in a way that's translatable and let's get that fine-tuned and let's now see where your body moves naturally Teaching squatting. Mm. Let's get your upper body brace. Let's get your shoulder brace. Let's get your spine neutral. Let's see where everything goes. And let's have you used to moving under load so now we can actually see how you squat naturally and develop it from there. Cool. Now, how would you approach, and I think this has become the most recent as I would, I wouldn't describe as a a trendy topic, but it is definitely maybe a hot topic, um, is, is the topic of breathing. Where does the breath come from? How ought we to breathe? Is that even something that we should be focusing on? Um, how do you approach breathing with the lifter who's going to endurance who may report struggling with just outside of not being enduring their breathing? Yeah, the, the concept of diaphragmatic breathing is, uh, is very different because, I mean, if, if you think about it, like just, just asking you. If, if a lifter is performing a heavy-weighted carry, where are they trying to breathe from? Well, they're probably going to try to fill their thorax up pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, it, I mean, if you're under a heavy yoke, for example, you're just breathing however the hell you can. Or however you can. Like, everything's kind of tight. I'm, I'm trying to think as if I were doing, like, a yoke. Yeah, but you're not – I mean, if you've got, if you've got a belt on especially, you're not going to be able to do deep diaphragmatic breathing. No, no, hardly. You're kind of just bracing and holding and then just along for the ride. Yeah, and exactly. And they tend to be rather shallow, controlled, strong breaths because that, that's allowing you to maintain that load on your back because 
breathing and the respiration cycle is one of the most dynamic movements of the entire torso that occurs on a regular basis, that is going to ruin your bracing process. So when you have a lifter that goes over to running, you need to almost coach the lifter into saying, okay, bracing is critical, but while the the, the volume of bracing you're doing is high because you're going to be doing it for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, the intensity is so low that we're going to have to teach you how to breathe through your stomach. We're going to have to teach you how to not focus on, you know, using those upper, you know, the, the, the chest respiration muscles so heavily because that's going to exhaust you. That's going to affect your torso positioning. You can't maintain leaning back and relaxed if you're doing heavy, you know, high cervical rise and fall, you know, high chest breathing. So it's, it's teaching that how to breathe through your diaphragm and how to relax and how to not fight inhalation and exhalation that I think is a big thing for a lot of people going over to running. Yeah, which seems to be uh, opposite towards that almost like not because you can over brace with, with lifting for sure. Uh, but it, it seems, or maybe this is just speaking from what my experience uh, has been most predominantly. But what I find is that with weight training and I think I just kind of answered the, the question. It is a little bit more automatic to me because that's where I've focused most of my attention longest for just kind of bracing and having those shallower breaths. Um, and, and the breath kind of comes, uh, I guess I'd say kind of globally from like thorax and, and uh, belly and it's a little bit more shallow. Um, but when I, it gets to running and I, you know, I kind of have this overdeveloped upper body in relation to lower body. Uh, where I just really tend to hold a lot of that, like in the shoulders, in the arms, in the neck. And I just have a hard time relaxing into things while running. Cause when I think of weight training, I I'm, I'm not really thinking of relaxing. I'm thinking of kind of like what is lengthening and from what is lengthening, what then do I have to feel to contract? So that aspect of relaxing during movement is new to me. It's it's pretty different. It, it really is. And I, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that for a lifter, the air in your lungs actually aids in maintaining posture. Running is exactly the opposite. <laughs> you yeah. Maintain posture in spite of the, the level of air in your lungs. And you know, we uh, one of the things that we sometimes instruct people on is you know what we call anywhere from three beat to five beat breathing as you're running. For three steps, inhale. For two steps, exhale. And what we try to teach is a lower, more deliberate breathing pattern because in lifting, you know, tidal volume doesn't matter. The amount of dead air that's neither, you know, that, that's basically staying in your lungs between breaths, it doesn't really matter because the effort is not long enough to really require that much fresh oxygen. For running, mm -hmm. you want to maintain and maximize the amount of fresh air that's coming in and going out. So... That's the difference right there is, is breathing for a strength athlete is functional in the aid of completing the lift. It is using the air in your lungs to help brace against the belt or using the air in your lungs to help brace that upper body and minimizing movement and creating that layer of pressure inside the abdomen to help stabilize the torso. In running, breathing is one of the objectives. That air exchange is one of the objectives. So body posture and body positioning needs to facilitate deep breaths not the other way around, where breath facilitates posture. So going from breathing facilitates posture to posture facilitates breathing is diametrically opposed. <laughs> um, and, and so 
is there an in-between? For the runner, it was the carrying before the barbell. Uh, is there an an in-between for the breathing uh, where perhaps the lifter now getting into endurance events is perhaps not on their feet during a run, but focusing on like quote unquote breathing drills. Is this something that you, that you rehearse with your athletes or is it kind of a, you have to learn by actually performing the task? Well, the, the first thing we do is especially with running is one of the hardest ways to teach breathing skills to non-runners. Uh, there, there are so many different stressors at once that it's just one cue too many. So one of the things we'll often have them do is specifically do something like a recumbent bike or a stationary bike and give them breathing drills to do while cycling. Uh, okay. And the breathing drills tend to be very much about opening the chest, diaphragmatic belly breathing, and talking about actually saying, okay, at a low intensity, let's do a three-count inhale and a two-count exhale, three-count inhale, two-count exhale, and get them used to the idea of maintaining a relaxed but upright posture and neutral spine while full diaphragmatic breaths are going in and out. And that's that's extremely useful because then at that point, it gets them thinking, okay, many of them are actually amazed at how much easier a given level of activity becomes when they're actually breathing properly and realize yeah. the, the short excessive breaths and high upper body tonus and tension has actually been fatiguing them and making it harder for them to get in the oxygen that they need. So that in and of itself is almost one of those things where they say, okay, once we teach a lifter how to balance their torso properly, how to eliminate that pelvic tilt, get a neutral spine, and breathe through their diaphragm when running, suddenly three-quarters of the things that they hate about running, which is they can't breathe, the lower back cramps, their calves cramp, and they feel horrible, suddenly those are gone. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think while we haven't really spoken about like sport of fitness type CrossFit uh, events or athletes, I think a big challenge there is that you have this increase in breath, uh, very likely higher than you would in an endurance run. Um, but you have this extra challenge where the exact muscles that you want to be relaxed might also be required to work at a very, very high level. So I, I have seen in a lot of our CrossFitters this uh, inability to ease into things because so much is working where when you watch a lot of these top CrossFit athletes, they seem to find their breath because of just simple movement efficiency that allows for better yeah. breathing. Have you noticed yeah. the same yeah, thing? Absolutely. And that's, that's when also being able to moderate force output comes in very handy because being able to maintain better breathing patterns and even diaphragmatic breathing patterns when some bracing is needed, but not maximal bracing is needed is very, very useful. Yeah. Uh, because if you can learn how to maintain a neutral posture while doing any sort of loaded upper or sorry, low, loaded lower body movement with 50% of your max or less, if you are still able to maintain proper breathing, proper diaphragmatic breathing, et cetera, your oxygen exchange and therefore volume tolerance is going to be significantly better than somebody who is in an overly tight, uh, you know, overly tight upper body, you know, uh, tension and can't actually maintain good gas exchange. It's 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 interesting. It's it's interesting how good crossfitters are so proficient at mentally switching between the different types of movement and different types of breathing and different types of bracing in between all these activities. Very cool. Now, do you guys? Uh, and I know this is becoming increasingly popular, uh, but do you guys like and if the athletes have it available, the skiergometer, or does that seem to uh, oppose? 
any of the other things that an athlete might be trying to accomplish that involves assuming that they're not doing decathlons or cross country skiing, like their bikes or their, or their runs. Just doing programming for a guy who's switching from long distance running to cross country skiing. Okay. Well, no, never mind. (laughs) I was like, ah, do you have a skier? You know, for me, I, I generally like that for, for CrossFitters, not because, or, you know, even for a lot of multimodal endurance athletes, um, not because it's necessarily translatable, but because it demonstrates the translatability of certain cues. And you know, more, more specifically on that, when we say, okay, we want to we wanna teach you to breathe like a runner, it's not breathe like a runner. It's breathe like an endurance athlete. It's breathing for you know, maximum oxygen exchange during movement. Uh, we're saying, okay, we want to teach you to economize like an endurance athlete. It's not just, okay, how do I run with minimal effort? It's how do I perform a cyclical repeat activity in the most efficient way possible? Not in the most powerful way possible, which is what lifters always do, but it's in the most efficient way possible. You know, the, always talk about the difference between, uh, you look at West Side powerlifting and dynamic effort work. It is imparting 100% force into 55% of your maximum load. Whereas endurance sports is, you know, exerting 10% force into 10% load, no more. And that, that whole idea of just doing enough work to move the load is something that is very critical. You want to get athletes into a mentality of thinking, how can I perform this cyclical movement over and over again with maximum movement economy? I don't care about exceeding force production. I just want enough force production to move at a given pace. So a skier is actually very useful in that regard because it's a slightly different stimulus. And you you have to get into that problem-solving mindset of saying, okay, I'm not just going to yank on those handles and see how fast I can move the little fan. What if I'm given a challenge that includes something like 15 minutes on this thing? Okay, I'm going to have to breathe. I'm going to have to be economical. I can't muscle down you know, with my back and triceps. So I'm going to have to use my entire body. I'm going to have to use that momentum, develop that cyclical efficiency. So for, for teaching an athlete the, the generalized skill acquisition that is endurance movement, it can be a very useful tool. You know, I, um, have all, I, I'll have to start queuing more around breathing as an endurance athlete, like you just put, for the skier. We, we love it because of the mobility that it allows an athlete to take um, who – might a be dealing with injury and it's just a little bit more comfortable because they're standing uh, or, or b because it might just allow the legs to rest a little bit more though the legs are involved when we have worked the legs in the past but what i've noticed in myself and i think a way that i'm personally kind of bringing this together is that so my intro before i had a really good intro to weightlifting was that there was this personal trainer in my town and he's like all right here's the here's the gym and there was distinctly an, uh, an upstairs and a downstairs. I said, well, what's downstairs? And he's like, don't worry about that. It was basically like all of the leg stuff, but I started off with all of the upper stuff and I had that for years before I found weightlifting. So I had this really just uh, like overdeveloped chest and arms and while I'm lean and have veins, like there's just like a lot of constriction there that puts a lot of pressure in my upper body like in a thoracic outlet kind of way. Um, and what I find with the skier is that if I do have diaphragmatic breathing, then it almost acts as therapy for that. Like I just get nice capillarization to the upper body and it feels like uh, therapeutic. But if my breath comes from the thorax or like from my high, sc- like high neck muscles and my scalenes, it just makes things worse. So I get this like 
unpleasant though nice litmus test as to whether I'm performing that technique correctly. Um, so just thought I'd, I'd run that by yeah. you. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, was that? Sorry, was that? Oh, no, oh, you're okay. coming through okay? I'll just hit an echo. I'll just hit an echo. Is I it still coming so. through? Uh, I'm not getting it on my side. Maybe ah, I can that's try. fine, man. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I, I think that's that's hugely instructive as well is using different types of activity, using different type of movements specifically to work on that one cue or that one component where doing it incorrectly punishes you so much in that one. That you're kind of forced yeah. to say, oh, well, you know, there's something going on here that I really need to reevaluate. For sure. Um, so we, we've kind of detailed the beginner going from a endurance background that feels comfortable and proficient to a uh, strength aspect that is new. So in a sense, they are a beginner to strength and vice versa. Now, and Alex, being respectful of your time, and, and if you wanted in the future to come back on, we could perhaps describe that intermediate or advanced level of progression. But I think there's been so much good takeaway uh, in, in this show, not just for the beginner or for the coach with the beginner, but considerations for what this might look like up the chain. Um, do you have any, in your mind, benchmarks from when this beginner might be working into these intermediate stages? Is it pertaining to endurance times or lifts, or is it more a time spent years I'm assuming certainly not months with their respective sports that they then become an intermediate level athlete in your mind. And, you know, I, I think this probably echoes this a lot. And I think a lot of strength coaches may look at this and say, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. It's, it's the point where you feel as though you are no longer, basically it comes to the point where we feel like we could technically add, I don't want to say unlimited volume, but extensive volume and no longer worry about fundamental breakdown into poor patterns. That, that sounds completely arbitrary, but you think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm instructing somebody on running. I have a lifter and he's, he's starting to run now. And they eventually get to the point where their, their stride, their movement pattern looks comfortable and their pattern of discomfort. Basically, once the things that are supposed to start hurting are what actually is hurting, then you know you're right. Mm -hmm. So we have this individual who goes out and as we increase his run volume, the only thing that starts to fatigue are the leg muscles, are the calves. Um, the, the typical things that we associate with poor running movement, we say, okay, you know, the knee problem, the, the shin splints, um, you know, the, the lower back cramps and things like that. Once those are eliminated and we get to the point where we are now adding volume to the individual and we are only experiencing target system fatigue then we know we've actually hit on something. We look for that. We look for consistency in heart rate data and performance where we say, okay, you know, if this individual is running without the use of a heart rate monitor that they're visibly looking at, are they capable of accurately equating their perceived exertion with the work their body is doing? And that, and that would say something like this. Okay, I want you to maintain a low zone three heart rate or level of effort for a 20 minute run without looking at your watch. And they managed to do that. We say, okay, you're crossing that threshold. It's a little bit like looking at a lifter and saying, well, at what point is a beginner becoming an intermediate and saying, well, okay, they are now able to accurately assess their level of effort. In other words, they're, you tell mm -hmm. them to do 80%, they'll hit 80% and it looks like 80%. 
And you say, okay, that to me tells me that this athlete is now aware of their own capabilities. They are aware. They don't have any major potentially injurious limiting factors in their movement where we think, okay, there's still a few things we need to fix. This individual can perform movements, and I trust this individual to start adding intensity or volume to a much greater extent without worrying about fundamental breakdown. So I, I think when it comes to runners, we basically say, you know, because we work with so many people with so many different profiles, we can't just say, okay, let's get you to a sub 21 minute 5K and then we consider you an intermediate or anything like that. Because if the individual weighs 250 pounds, for them, that would equate to a VO2 max that puts them at, you know, <laughs> US nationals levels. So, but we say, okay, you can now run a 5K and there is no lingering pain and you can run a 5K. I can tell you to go run a 5K at 7 out of 10 intensity and your heart rate data is going to correlate to that precisely. And I'll know that you are now very aware of your body's capabilities and you have done everything you need to do to mitigate potentially injurious or potentially, you know, things that can lead to overreaching and not properly addressed. That to us is that delineation between beginner and intermediate. It's the ability to self-regulate and to self-monitor activity. And that's how I've seen it primarily, especially with it when it comes to just the, how, how their skill looks and the consistency of that skill. But you know, I, I think you mentioned something interesting, and this is kind of what we'll close on, and I never thought about it. It seems to be like a continuum of sorts is the type of fatigue that, and not to say that intermediate to advanced level lifters don't have aches and pains. They might have it for a different reason, but there seems to be this continuum of fatigue where if you're a beginner, you might have the wrong kind of fatigue due to a lack of skill where you might not be using what you would otherwise want to be using. So it limits you in that regard. Whereas if you are proficient at your skill, it's the exact thing that you want to have accomplished that holds you back. Uh, and you are having to recover from the fatigue that is just par for that course. I, I never thought of it from a fatigue standpoint, as, as you had mentioned. And, and as I think about it, that sounds a lot like my skiing uh, experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I think it's one of the biggest eye-opening things has been really trying to think about what is, what is translatable because, you know, even coming from a strength background, when I look at a runner, when I look at the move, you know, at, at this point, obviously I can see a lot more of the running technique and everything else, but fundamentally I think about everything in terms of what are the known factors? What, what do I know about athlete development? And when I use something as a proxy for their level of experience, what am I really looking at here? Am I looking at just numbers? Because numbers can always be liars. What am I looking for? I'm looking for technique. Uh -huh. Again, like you said, technique, repeatability, and self-regulation. How do those express themselves in their training? And how can I detect when those have reached kind of that critical threshold? And, you know, like, like you're saying, it's what are the things that you're supposed to be sore actually get sore? You know, the peaking for a meet yeah. are the things that I expect them to be really fatiguing in is that what's actually happening because when you talk about the difference between how you train a beginner and intermediate and all it comes down to load tolerance development tolerance and you know rate of skill acquisition and everything else and you say okay an intermediate is no longer they're no longer going to make massive strides in skill development they're no longer because we assume that all that low-hanging fruit is taken care of so that delineation mm -hmm. to us between beginner and intermediate it represents that point where there's no longer there's no longer easy, low-hanging fruit in terms of athlete development. Everything is going to have to be nuanced and building on existing skills. And that is, to us, if they still have that low-hanging fruit, then they're not an intermediate. Awesome. 
Uh, well, Alex, I think when we when we set out to uh, discuss the development of a beginner athlete, and then I think we, we touched on some of the intermediate as well. Uh, I think we I, at least I uh, learned a lot myself and had a great time talking about it. And uh, thanks again so much for coming on. Maybe in the future we'll be able to uh, discuss some other fun topics. But uh, uh, thanks so much. Enjoyed it was a, very a great much. Talk. Thanks for having me back on. All right. Cheers. Man. All right. Talk to you soon.